When I was in high school, I distinctly remember this particular question being asked a tremendous amount. What is God's will for fill in the blank? Uh, in high school, our thoughts were uh, very much so, uh, what is God's will for what college I'd go to, or if I should go to college, or, or what career I should choose, or things like that. And one of the most frustrating elements about asking this question was the answers, because the answer was never specific. It was never a, this is what you ought to do. It was always very vague and ethereal, and to my young uh, ears, unhelpful. I wanted a specific answer. We don't walk amongst prophets in our age, and thus we don't usually get the kinds of answers we often seek when we're wanting very specific, God wants for you to do this and then experience that, so that brings you over here and there and back and forth, so on and so forth. Usually when we contemplate what we ought to do, if we ask others this question, the response we receive is this, what would be most glorifying to God? What would be most honoring and pleasing to the Lord? Now, I think the folly of my youth kept me from seeing that that answer is both valid and helpful. Valid and helpful. What would be most honoring and most pleasing to God? This question provides Christians with a rubric, a principled framework through which we run our decision-making. That same question, what is God's will for X, obviously does not stop in high school. We often wonder that with various decisions that crop up in our lives. What does God want for me to do? And while we don't likely receive prophetic clarity for all of our decisions, we are told by scripture, the purpose and end of all things. And that's helpful for us. If we grasp this, if we grasp what scripture has given to us as the the telos or the purpose or the end of all things, then we can discern are our choices in line with God's purposes. All of history, every choice, every act, Every occurrence marches towards this inevitable end, the exalting of the Lord Jesus to the glory of God the Father. The exalting of the Lord Jesus to the glory of God the Father. And that idea, the glory of Christ, will be the focus of this morning's sermon. We're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And I would like to divide this text into two main primary points. First, we're going to talk about, or rather Paul is going to talk about, the Christ-centered nature of redemption. And second, the Christ-centered nature of the cosmos. May the Lord this morning raise our eyes up to behold the glory of Christ as revealed in Scripture to see his splendor manifested in the work of redemption and to behold him as the center of the Father's will. May the Spirit of God stir our hearts with love for our Savior and may we be brought into humble submission before his throne. Let's read our text, Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, and then pray. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Lord God, grant us this morning an understanding of this text Cause our hearts to be stirred with affection for you, Lord, and to see the gloriousness of Christ, to see him as the apex and the climax of all your works, and cause us, Lord, to 
bow in humble submission to him as our king, as our savior, as our redeemer. Grant us, Lord, favor this morning. And may our study of Ephesians 1 be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are at all familiar with Ephesians 1, you will probably know this detail. It is a complex, (laughs) complex set of verses, especially the intro. Uh, Paul weaved in Ephesians 1 an incredible text brimming with theological truths. It is perhaps... I might argue, the most intense run-on sentence in all history. (laughs) Ephesians 1 is super crazy, and quite honestly, we just don't have time to mine through the entire text, though I would love to. This is the problem with two services. If we get one service, we can have an 18-hour sermon. It'll be great. We'll be able to get through all of Ephesians 1 in that case, but alas, we don't have time to do that this morning. Now, um, a few years ago, Rich actually preached through the entire book of Ephesians back in It was 2018, which is crazy. It's been that long. Um, In any case, if you're at all interested in hearing a verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Ephesians, you can check out all of those sermons on the sermon podcast or in the sermon archives on the website. Uh, I'd encourage you to do that. that. Um, It's a fantastic text worthy of a deep dive and study. Though time does not permit us to look at the entirety of the section, we can still gleam an overall purpose of Paul's discourse here from chapter 1, verse 3. So if you have your Bibles open, jump up to verse 3 of the same chapter. This is how Paul begins this whole section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The initial paragraph of Ephesians, filled with dense theology, serves this overall purpose, and it's important to not lose sight of this as we press forward, to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What that means is that every single spiritual benefit that you have as a Christian is because God has wrought those benefits for you. And specifically, he has done so in Christ, in Christ. There is no spiritual blessing that Christians have that was not given to us and secured through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Not one. The Father's work in bringing many sons to glory has been enacted through the Son. And this brings us to the first overall point that we'll deal with this morning, the Christ-centered nature of redemption. The Christ-centered nature of redemption. This is what I want to uh, lead you through in the first half of this text, these points. One, salvation was accomplished by Christ. Two, salvation is only found in Christ. Three, salvation serves to highlight Christ's excellencies. Fourth, salvation serves the purpose of exalting the Lord Jesus. Let's begin by looking at the first verse of our text here, verse seven. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Note the first two opening words, in him. Now, if you read through the text of Ephesians, you'll find like a billion in hymns in uh, the intro to Ephesians. It's a, it's a motif, a refrain of Paul's throughout the section, and it's critical to understanding what he's talking about in this section. All these things that are talked about in Ephesians 1 are in Christ, are in Christ. They cannot be divorced from the work of our Savior. Paul uses this specific in him to grammatically tie verse 7 to the end of verse 6. If you go back one verse, verse verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the beloved. Now, the in him is specifically tied back to the beloved at the end of verse 6, as though Paul had said, in this beloved one, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So, in him. Next phrase, we have redemption. We have redemption. What is redemption? 
Quite literally, it means to buy back a slave or a captive, or to make free by payment of a ransom. So let me ask this question. What definitive act of God was the model of redemption prior to Christ? The Exodus. The Exodus. I think we often have a very segmented view of God's works, but God has illustrated for us in the Exodus truths that can be brought over and applied to our greater Exodus to the redemption from slavery to sin. I don't think we should divorce our redemption from the other works of God. There's a parallel that Scripture references between the two. God's people, Israel, were enslaved to Egypt. They're in bitter bondage, and God redeemed them. Exodus 6 says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. God created patterns of actions in the past that typify and point forward to greater actions in the future. In other words, the slavery, subsequent exodus of Israel, points forward with the giant arrow to our own slavery and exodus. As Israel was enslaved to Egypt, so too is all of mankind in bondage to sin and death. And Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. Now, he's speaking in Ephesians 2 to believers. He'll go on to talk about how we were saved by grace. Famous verses at the end, Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 9. But he begins by saying you, so that's us, Christians, we were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were dead. Our relationship to sin was one of utter slavery. Sin is a worse master than Pharaoh. Sin is a greater enemy than Egypt. And because the slavery, the nature of our slavery was worse, the nature of our redemption had to be greater. Had to be greater. Now, I want to speak for a moment about the nature of sin because I think that when we rightly grasp what sin is and the offensiveness of it and and the darkening effects it has, in that context, our eyes behold the graciousness of God and the kindness of the Lord in rescuing us from that enemy. So I want to talk about sin for a moment. I, I think for any of you who are saved at a young age, we are prone to overlook the vileness of sin. When I'm on on the street doing street evangelism, I will often encounter people who talk about sin like a speeding ticket. I've heard this example brought up a number of times. Some reason, I mean, sin's like a speeding ticket. God's like the cop who pulls us over. Um, Can't God just be merciful? I mean, maybe I didn't see the speed limit sign. Uh, God knows my heart. He knew what I wanted to do. He'll cover over areas of ignorance. I mean, he's love after all, right? These musings are but the vain imaginations of men who do not know what Scripture says about sin and the holiness of God. Sin is not a speeding ticket. We barely grasp the shadow of of God's infinite holiness. Think about this. Before any sunrise rose over the horizon, before the stars were hung as ornaments to decorate the night sky, before the birds sang their songs, before water flowed on the shores, before matter and energy and time itself, there was the Almighty. Spurgeon wrote a whole paragraph about this idea of what it was like for God prior to creation. And I kept, I kept trying to be like, can I you know, get parts of this? And eventually realized I can't, I can't just copy Spurgeon. I need to just read Spurgeon. So permit me for a moment to read what Spurgeon said about this. 
He wrote, There was a time when all that we now behold of God's great universe was yet unborn, slumbering within the mind of God. Though no seraph hymned his praises, though no strong-winged cherubs flashed like lightning to do his behests, yet he sat as a king on his throne, the mighty God forever to be worshipped, the dread supreme, in solemn silence dwelling by himself in vast immensity, the light of his own countenance forming the brightness of his glory. And it pleased this Lord to create as an expression of his nature, of his being, of who he was. He created order and logic and consistency displayed in the laws of physics. He, he, he built and knitted into sunrises and mountains and spiraling galaxies beauty. Life itself in beings both visible and invisible, populating the cosmos for the glory of God. Holiness, goodness, and righteousness on display in creatures with a moral agency and a law to obey. All things were brimming with purpose, given by the Creator, pointing to His matchless splendor and incomprehensible nature. And when we think about such things, do not for a moment glimpse our smallness. We are, we are dust. We are but dust. The Lord is the sovereign Lord, and we are dust. And yet we, as His creatures, as an expression of His goodness, we rose up against Him in cosmic rebellion, in a gross, twisting, violent assault against the Holy One. Adam fell. Sin entered creation. And we must understand, understand, Scripture tells us that sin was not a slight blemish on an otherwise perfect creation. Sin was a catastrophic explosion of all things contrary to the very nature of the Creator. It was not the breaking of an arbitrary law, but a gross violation of who God was. In the Creator was found life and goodness and truth and beauty and satisfaction and love. And so sin brought about in His creation the exact opposite, death, filth, lies, the mundane, the ugly, meaninglessness, disgust. And it propagated and it persisted like a disease. It spread itself through the creation. Each act of sin that was brought on by Adam's descendants being a cosmic declaration of war on the holy creator. Sin is no speeding ticket. And we must understand, as Christians, we've done this. This is not an abstract concept that's floating out there separate from ourselves. We have sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. We made ourselves, by nature and choice, enemies of the Almighty God. We sought to overthrow his rule and establish our own in its place. We do this every time we persist in sinning. Every lie, every wayward thought, every prideful intent, every unjust outburst of anger are attacks on the sovereign Lord, are a conspiracy to overthrow him and replace him. And so you see, church, our slavery was indeed much worse than Israel's. Israel was forced to make great works for a nation that worshipped pagan gods. And it exhausted them. They were tired. They were beat down. We have been made to build great works of cosmic rebellion. Our wicked labors did not produce mere exhaustion. 
our wicked deeds wrought forth death, a far worse ill. Exodus 6 tells us that God redeemed Israel with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. But the bigger enemy, the the worst master, needed a power far greater than all the plagues dumped upon Israel. A display of wrath far eclipsing the killing of every firstborn in the land. Sin was so extreme, so offensive, such a tyrant, that the price of redemption had to be incredible. And we read of the price, the powerful, precious, wrath-filled price that was paid in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. The greatest ransom payment, the definitive display of judgment, of power, the act greater than all the plagues of Egypt combined was the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Jesus' blood was immensely precious and powerful. And that leads us to ask this question, why? Why? Why was Jesus' blood so powerful? What was it about this man that made it so that his sacrifice would be a greater display of wrath than God utterly decimating Egypt? Here are a few reasons. First, because of Jesus' nature. Because of Jesus' nature. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We've been learning in John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Through Him, all things were made. And without Him was not even a single thing made that was made. This is the Son who upholds the universe by the Word of His power. This is the Son who is in the very form of God, as Philippians says. This is the Son in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, says Colossians. And yet this Son humbled Himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus' blood was precious to the Father, sufficient to avert his wrath in part because of who he was. He's the Word of God, the only begotten Son who humbled himself in an act pleasing to the Father. His blood was precious because of who he was and who he is. Another reason, Christ's blood was uniquely powerful because Jesus was morally pure. Morally pure. Jesus, having been tempted in every way, yet without sin, was the spotless Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb. He he was morally without blemish. He was most suitable for the task of becoming a substitute sacrifice, that the substitutionary taking of God's wrath upon himself Because had he sinned, any wrath that he experienced, he would have deserved. Because he deserved no wrath, he was able to receive wrath on behalf of others. Here's an example. A man who has lots of debt cannot pay off another man's debts. But a man who has great wealth is able to pay the debts of any man. Christ's death propitiated, that is, averted God's wrath because he owed no sin debt of his own and had secured righteousness through obedience. Christ's blood was also powerful because he is our covenant head, our covenant head, or a second and better Adam. You're like, what does that mean? (laughs) Jesus was not merely a substitute for a single person. It's not a one for one. It's not that Jesus died one other person was the lucky one who who, uh, was redeemed. A whole host of 
brothers, as the book of Hebrews says, were brought to glory through his work. Well, why? Because Jesus was a substitute for all those who are in him, in him, represented by him. Romans chapter 5 walks through this uh, gloriously. Uh, Romans 5 talks about how Adam was our first representative, our first covenant head. He was chosen by God to represent all of humanity. And so when Adam fell, we fell in him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. We died in Adam because he represented us, represented us before God. I like to use this example. It's not a perfect illustration, but similar in concept. Think of how a king of Israel would represent the people before God, such that if a king sinned, the nation was often judged. This happened a number of times in the Old Testament. King would sin, God's judgment would fall on the people because the king was representing the people before God, similar to understanding this concept. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When he was found guilty, we were found guilty. But there is a better Adam, a second Adam. Jesus is the covenant head of his people so that whatever he secures is applied to all those in his covenant. To finish out the earlier verse from 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul writes. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ's blood was especially precious and powerful because the Lord Jesus was our covenant head. He represented all those in him. So his death is your death. You died on that cross in him. His righteousness is your righteousness now. Why can you be justified? Why can you be declared righteous? Are you worthy? Are you righteous? Have any of us done works that would make us righteous in God's eyes? No. We are righteous because in him we have his righteousness. His resurrection and his life become our resurrection and our life. What Christ secured by obedience to God's law, we were given as though we were obedient to the law. <laughs> Every spiritual blessing is in Christ. Returning to our text, to summarize, we have been brought out of slavery to sin. We have, been, we have redemption by means of his uniquely precious and powerful blood. In the next phrase in the verse here, uh, the forgiveness of our trespasses gives us further information about this redemption. Kind of like parentheses. We have redemption, parentheses, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption is more than only forgiveness, but it certainly includes forgiveness. Part of our redemption by the blood of Jesus was our forgiveness. We can easily glance over this. We're, we're very familiar to the language of forgiveness. But it's worth pausing and recognizing the immensity of this. Do we realize the helplessness of the sinner to cleanse the poor state of the enemy of God to forgive himself or, or to bring about forgiveness for himself? The wrath of God comes towards sinners. It marches forward. And what can the sinner do to cleanse oneself by your own works is like cl cleaning a muddy shirt with muddy hands. You can spread that mud around, but you are not getting clean by your own efforts. Sin leaves us without hope, without recourse, broken, marred, darkened, lost. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Through the shedding of Christ's blood, we have what we could not gain ourselves. Forgiveness, cleansing, washing, debt paid, stains cleaned, mud taken away. The vilest of your deeds, your worst offenses have been washed, church. Think about this practically. We have, we're fallen, we have in our minds the 
depths of our sin. We know the areas of profound sin. We're aware of them. And they come back to us at times. And they chain us. We have been freed from these sins, church. We have been cleansed. The vilest offenses of yours have been nailed to the cross. You bear them no more. You have freedom in Christ. And we have to ask the question, why? Why should we be the subject of such mercy? What did we bring to God? The answer for Christians is somewhat obvious, nothing. We bring nothing. Verse seven continues. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. There is no other reason but the riches of his grace. Notice, Paul could have just said according to his grace. That, that we would have gotten the point. But he added in this extra word, according to the riches, the wealth of his grace. False religion sees redemption as transactional. We bring obedience, we receive mercy. We bring deeds and ordinances, we receive entrance into God's kingdom. But the gospel says, by grace we have been saved. It is not your own doing. It is a gift, not the result of works. We have this because of the riches of his grace, because of the kindness of God, because of the work of the Lord Jesus. As the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Verse 8 continues after this to intensify God's graciousness. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He's lavished you, saints. He's lavished you according to his perfect wisdom and understanding. God did not skimp out on a helping of grace. You are drowning in it. It abounds. And what can we do in response? What ought be our response but thanksgiving? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, that this truth would be etched into our hearts. This is worth our affections swelling for. This is worth being obsessed about. This is worth centering our lives around. Do not be cold towards the truths of the gospel. Embrace them. Bring them near. Meditate on them. Delight in them. Let your cheeks be filled with tears at the recognition of the grace of the, of the Father. May the Spirit liven our souls with praise to God. To those who are not Christians this day, be warned. God's wrath comes for those who are still in Adam, who are marked by their sin and rebellion. The day of judgment marches ever nearer, the day when every deed will be brought to account. Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You must understand, there is no forgiveness outside of Christ. There is no forgiveness outside of Christ. Now is the time for you to fall before the throne of God and to grasp the cross for your cleansing. This very day, repent and turn from your sins. Cast yourself on Christ. Bring none of your own works and ordinances to bear. Simply cling to the work of the Lord Jesus and he will take your place. He will bear your wrath. He will freely cleanse you of all your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The first point I sought to make for this text, I hope, has been demonstrated. Redemption draws our eyes to Christ. He is the focal point 
of the entire work of salvation. Redemption is because of Christ. Redemption is on the basis of Christ. Redemption is only in Christ. Redemption is about Christ. And redemption is for the glory of Christ. Now let us turn our attention to the second point that Paul makes with this text. The Christocentric nature of the cosmos. Verse 9, continue on, says this. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God's flood of grace does more than only redeem us. Here, Paul tells us that the disclosure of God's will is itself an act of grace. We know what God is up to because he has graciously told us. And apart from God's self-disclosure, we could know nothing, nothing about him. God made known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of his will. What does this mean? What is the mystery of his will? Well, a biblical mystery is something that was once shrouded, something that was once unclear, something that was once shadowy, but has now been revealed with abundant clarity. The end of verse 9 and verse 10 10 tells us, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. First, notice that this good purpose was set forth in Christ. Set forth in Christ. What does that mean? I think what Paul is saying is that the the way that God publicly revealed his will was in Christ, in his work, in his teachings, in his ministry, in his life, his death, his resurrection, in his mediatorial roles as prophet, priest, and king. Such works of Christ have revealed to us with clarity the ancient mystery of God's will. In Jesus, the Father has revealed something precious, a pearl, something hidden. And the works of Christ have brought clarity to that. What was that mystery? It was a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in Christ. What does that mean? (laughs) That's what we're going to look at. God has intended all things, all beings, all all history, Old Testament and New Testament, ancient church, church history, modern church history, all things from creation into eternity to center around the apex of Christ. The Lord Jesus stands at the head of all time. He is the one to whom the ages point. In the Old Testament days, there were the the seeds of the Messiah's work, who the Messiah was, what he would do, what God was doing with this Christ. But it was like looking into a large room with only a candle for light. We could see the shapes, the forms of things, but the details were obscured. It were hidden by shadows. The life of Jesus is like the sunrise and the sun dumping into the room, illuminating every crevice, every corner, showing us the details of what was present and revealed in the Old Testament. We see now the seed of the woman, the prophet greater than Moses, the Davidic king, the suffering servant, with a kind of clarity that they did not. And we see that Jesus is the crux the apex of all the works of God from eternity past into eternity future. The Father's purpose was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, the word plan has built into it the sense of something to be managed. Some other translations say an administration or or an office or a household. God set forth for Jesus a, a management position, an office of oversight to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, God has established Jesus as the one who works things towards this goal. Jesus is the one who enacts this will of the Father. He is the one who brings all all things together in himself. Unite is the, the key word of this text, of this whole section. 
Unite is a, is a complex word. It's, uh, there's lots of senses to it, lots of different meanings. To unite means to summarize, to bring back together, to recapitulate. And as I was studying out how it would be most helpful to demonstrate what exactly this is saying, I thought it'd be very helpful to jump over to a parallel text in Colossians 1. This parallel text uses the same theological idea with a slightly different word, and I think it helps us understand what Paul means by unite all things in him. Colossians 1, verse 20, says this, through, and through him to reconcile all things to himself whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in Colossians, same theological idea. Paul uses the language of reconcile. Reconcile means to bring together, to repair a breach, to bring into right relationship. And so what is a right relationship between all things in heaven on earth and Christ? It is a relationship of submission and subjection. And so my argument is that this text in Ephesians 1, 10, to unite all things, is specifically talking about reconciling all of creation to Christ so that it is ordered properly, so that Christ is the Lord and master of the cosmos. And it is his office, his task, to bring all things to that end. Now, if you got totally lost in all my arguments there, here's the overall point to kind of come back together. The hidden purpose of God was to bring the cosmos under the headship of Christ. That was the hidden purpose. To understand why this is significant, I think it's worth looking at Jesus' role as the chief man, the chief apex of humanity. God created mankind to have dominion over creation, to to fill and populate it, to manage it, to care for it. The duty of man was to work and tend and keep the Garden of Eden. And by doing that, he would worship and obey the Father who set that before him as his task. At the fall, though, what happened was a distortion of this purpose. Sin brought about a devastation of God's created order. Adam still had dominion, but the earth fought back. He still represented God, but the image was marred and darkened. There was a forfeiture of right, proper authority over the earth. God intended man to rule over the earth with a special kind of authority. And when that was lost, the hope of restoration rested on the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and bring an end to the curse. And so, what I mean by that is Jesus recaptured what was lost by Adam. Jesus recaptured what was lost by Adam. And he was given an even greater dominion than even Adam was given. When we think about the cross, we often hyper-focus on areas of redemption. And yes, certainly, particular redemption was a significant, primary even perhaps, uh, facet of the cross's victory. But there were other related victories secured at Calvary. At the cross, Jesus recaptured the authority that had been previously lost. The New Testament tells us that he won a kind of spiritual victory over authorities, evil authorities, and creatures opposed to God's rule and reign. Colossians 2.15 says this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, in his ministry on earth, repeatedly referred to the casting out of the ruler of this world. So if you think back to the wilderness temptation of Jesus, Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, I will give you all the nations of the earth. I'll I'll give them to you. Jesus did not fall to that temptation. But I think what's going on there is not Satan being like, what could I randomly give Jesus that I don't have? I don't think it was an arbitrary decision. I think there was a kind of um, provisional authority that Satan had on earth at that time that he twisted away from Adam at the fall. Jesus didn't fall into that temptation, but he did get all the authority. (laughs) Rather than falling to Satan's trap, he wrestled dominion back at his victory at the cross. 
Jesus is now the ruler of all. And this is where there's a plot twist a bit. (laughs) Adam was given dominion over the earth, over created physical things. But Jesus was given dominion and authority over things in heaven and things on earth. Not only a physical dominion, but a spiritual dominion. In other words, the authority and dominion of Jesus surpasses the authority and dominion of Adam. Earth and heaven, humans and angels are made subject to him. All of the cosmos of created things point to him and are under him. And this is why Jesus says at the end of the gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what was once hidden and obscured, that Jesus would be the supreme Lord over heaven and earth, but it's now been revealed to us. There exists not a single stray molecule that is not in subjection to the Lord of Lords. Jesus reigns over every single thing, over the regenerate and the unregenerate, over the angels and the demons. Jesus is the king over every power on this planet and beyond. Every king, every president, every school official, every supreme court judge, every demonic power. Hell itself is ruled not by Satan, but by Jesus, who secured dominion over all things at the cross. He is the king. So we have to ask, why do we still observe rebellion then? If he's the king, why has this not all ended? Why are not all things brought into a right order and submission to him? Quite simply because he withholds his hand. He stays his judgment as an act of mercy. Jesus is working out his reign through the church until the fullness of the elect are brought in and God's purposes are fulfilled on earth. Jesus patiently waits until all his sheep come to him and then the end will come. But make no mistake, the wicked may spit and hate him and muster their strength against the Lord's anointed, but he is their king. At the slightest whisper of Jesus, his enemies fall on their faces before At a mere glance, the the greatest kings of the earth cast their kingdoms before him. He is not weak. He is merciful and waiting for the day of the Lord so that his people would be saved. We do not wait for the victory of Christ. He's already won. We await the consummation of that victory. The evil of our present age cannot stand against the glorious purposes of the king. And so, as we conclude this whole idea, the broad scale of what Paul is talking about here is that Christ is the telos, the purpose, the end of the universe. God made all things to be united in him, that he may be the conclusion, the climax, the Lord, the purpose of the universe. We go back to the question I asked at the beginning, what is the will of God? This is the will of God, to elevate Christ as the preeminent one, to the fulfillment of all the Father's works of providence so that God and God alone may be glorified. This is dramatic for us. This is paradigm shifting for us because what it tells us is that all the various facets of our lives have meaning and purpose to be summed up in Christ. God does not act in fractured ways. I hear a lot of times people say the God of the Old Testament kind of did his own thing and the God of the New Testament is kind of different and they're kind of separate, disjointed purposes. Absolutely not. But God has purposed. He has purposed from eternity past into eternity future. Jesus is that purpose, centering history around Jesus. And so for you and I, when we think about our lives, we may struggle with times of meaninglessness, of feeling that we are without purpose, feeling as though we need hope, feeling as though things are spiraling out of control, perhaps. But this fact gives us hope 
and purpose and meaning to everything in our lives. Jesus is the end for which the universe exists and marches forward. All the strands of history, all the individual acts, and even tragedies will serve in some sense to point to Christ, to elevate him, to bring many sons to glory. Jesus is the reason for the universe. And in that we have hope and we have rest. And we have rest and glorious purpose. This must influence the way we act. Surely the one who secured victory by his death and brought together all heaven and earth under his dominion deserves dramatic obedience and submission in our lives. A lot of times, I don't think that anyone actually thinks this, but sometimes when we talk about obedience, we talk about it as exclusively an act of thanksgiving and gratitude. We obey God. We, we submit to his rule and his reign and his commandments because we're thankful, because he saved us, and we, we want to show him uh, that we love him by obeying him. That's true. That's, that's certainly true. But we also should obey because Jesus is king. We should also obey because he's on the throne, and the king demands obedience. The king is holy, and his people are to be holy. We must have this conviction in ourselves. Obedience is not optional. Obedience is what the king demands of his people, and we, church, are his people. And so live intentionally to bring glory to him, to mirror his obedience, to draw eyes upwards to him on the throne. Christ ought flavor every facet of our lives. Our obedience ought to be acts of cosmic warfare. Our songs ought to be filled with the tales of his deeds. Our sermons must revolve around his excellencies and his work. Our minds ought always ponder him. Our hearts should be caught up regularly with an enduring love and strong affections for him. He is the center of redemption. He is the center of the cosmos. Jesus is glorious. He is glorious. He is highly exalted. He is the purpose of all things. And it is our created duty to worship, praise, adore, and obey him now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we worship you because in Christ, you have brought all history to its conclusion. In Jesus, we are counted righteous, though we are wicked. We have peace with you, though we did nothing but heap up acts of rebellion. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the redemption that we have. Thank you that you lavish us with your grace, that you reveal yourself and your purposes and your plan. Thank you that all history, even the hardest parts of human history, have a purpose and an end and a telos and encourage us with this individually, Lord. Grant us joy and peace when we have trials. Grant us a firm confidence that you are working all things to their proper end. And may your son be glorified in our lives. May he be exalted. May he be chiefly on our minds. Sanctify us by your spirit, Lord. Cause us to be holy as you are holy and remind us of the gospel each day. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name.